Popcorn Heist is an interactive community of pop culture lovers that spans multiple mediums. We dive deep into TV shows and movies of the past, present, and future to bring you the hottest takes and the coldest truths. Do you have what it takes? Join the heist. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Popcorn Heist the Podcast. My name is Jake, and if you're watching on video, then you'll notice my trusty co-host Nick is not with me tonight, um, but that is for a very specific reason, which I'll get into in a minute. Um, you know, miss my brother, but this is new for Popcorn Heist the Podcast, and uh, we're excited. We have a very special episode for you today. If you haven't listened to previous episodes... Um, and I haven't mentioned it on previous episodes. The Sopranos is one of my favorite TV shows of all time. And our guest here is a very, very special person associated with The Sopranos. But before we get into that, if this is your first time joining Popcorn Heist, the podcast on audio or video, Popcorn Heist is a brand created by Nick and I to share movie and TV content created by diehard fans. And Popcorn Heist, the podcast, is a show where we can nerd out about franchises we love, such as Marvel, Star Wars, Game of Thrones, and The Sopranos. So we release new episodes every Thursday. If you like an episode you listen to, please give us a follow and a review on iTunes because it really helps the show. And we'd be remiss if we also didn't mention the other podcast on the network called A Simp's Guide to the MCU, where relationships, romances, and bromances of the Marvel Cinematic Universe are discussed with Listen Kelly. If you want more pop culture content such as blog posts, rankings, brackets, and Tuesday trivia... Visit us online at popcornheist.com or follow us on Instagram at popcornheist. Now, with that being said, without further ado, for Sopranos fans out there, for new fans, for old fans alike, I'd like to introduce you to, he is well known for uh, starring on shows like Dynasty, The Practice, Night Court, NCIS, Ray Donovan, Mad Men, and he is the actor who portrays Little Carmine Lupertazzi on The Sopranos. Please welcome... Ray Abruzzo. Hey, Jay. How you doing, cousin? Good cousin. Do they know that yet? They do not, but what better timing to, to, to let them know? I think we should let them know right off the bat. Cugino. Cugino. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How's everything been, man? Uh, you know, I, I don't know if you heard, but there, there was a, um, a pandemic for the last 18 months. No. no yeah, I, yeah. That, catch me up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So that's what's been happening. Uh, but I managed to stay sane. But uh, I'm okay. It's nice to see your face. Talk to you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this one of the you got to think of light side and dark side to everything. One of the light side is uh, could talk to each other over Zoom mm-hmm. through the pandemic. And probably people sometimes you normally wouldn't even talk to. Years would just go by. But now people feel um, a little more inclined and they have a, a need to connect more than they could, did before, I think. It's actually, uh, I found that. I spoke to friends I haven't talked to in years yeah. because of the pandemic. It's like the world's getting smaller and smaller, oh, almost. Crazy. It's, yeah. So, Like doing here a podcast talk. with your cousin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Your fourth cousin once removed. Once removed. I it, had to do all that cousin math. Did uh, you figure it out? Is it fourth once removed? I thought it was third. I think it's third once removed. You're, yeah. you're right. Yeah. Yeah. But nonetheless, we're here to talk about anything and everything. But before we get into that, on every episode of Popcorn Heist, the podcast, Ray, we start the, our conversations with a movie or TV show quote. 
uh, me and my co-host Nick okay. are very big movie quote fans. We're fiends for quoting things back and forth. And for you, I chose uh, one of my favorite little Carmine quotes from The Sopranos. Uh, today's quote of the episode is, if there's one thing my father taught me, it's this. A pint of blood costs more than a gallon of gold. If only I had delivered it that good, Jake. <laughs> yeah, that's that that's that was first of all that whole scene, you know, most of my a lot of my best stuff was written by Terry Winter and he wrote that scene. And that that particular sit down has quite a few of those. But mm-hmm. that one is just so funny because you to see everybody's reaction to it, the camera cuts around to all the other characters, you know, Silvio and uh, Phil and everybody. And it's like, they want to understand it, but do they, do they get it? If they don't quite, you know, uh, it's but, really one of those like head turning moments. Like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. I kind of get the, is yeah. yeah. They're never quite sure whether maybe I am saying something that they just never heard. <laughs> maybe. maybe. <laughs> yeah. Cause let's face, you know, little Carmine always gets the rap of being, you know, the idiot, the one with the mallow props, but, They've all had their share. Remember, I mean, even uh, oh, yeah. Tony, Tony had a, an albacore around his neck, you know. So, <laughs> so they were all they were all you know Quasimodo. They all they all had their moments, you know. It's one of the little things that I think another thing that just sets the Sopranos apart. I'm sure you would agree is that while it's a it's a very serious show and a great drama, that it's so funny. There are tiny little things that'll fly right over your head. You'll catch it the second time around. Second, third, and fourth, or twentieth, as I'm as I'm realizing now, there are people that have watched it twenty or fifty times all the way through. But yeah. that was the magic of that show that worked on so many levels. You could have some of these very violent, intense scenes, and you know, eight seconds later, you're laughing at something that's as funny as anything on any you know one, two, three camera sitcom because it was, it's that funny. Yeah. Uh, but you know, the beauty of it is all. It was all rooted in the characters themselves. You know, it was never just a laugh for a laugh's sake. You know, there was, it really did go to the essence of each character. And that's uh, that's what gave the show such texture and depth, I think. For sure. A testament to you guys, the actors and, and the writers as well. You know, it's, it's, it's not just a line thrown in there for, for the sake of throwing a line in. No, no. It, start, it starts with the writing, you know. And yeah. I, I was fortunate to have uh, <laughs> some of the best of those those one-liners and malaprops and convoluted <laughs> convoluted paragraphs yeah. yes that that quote is only one of many oh many uh, yeah many. yeah for sure and i bet you had a blast delivering i did that. you know it was it it really you know i i didn't come on till season four and like you know i've done a lot of tv prior you know i had 30 40 years of tv prior to the sopranos so you know i was pretty familiar with stepping into a tv show some that have already been big hits you know i came on dynasty which was a huge hit in the 80s and i came on at the end it was already huge and uh, Nike. Well, there's a lot of those shows. So I was kind of used to it. But when I started on The Sopranos in season four, I remember I, I was flying. My first scene was in Florida with uh, Tony, a sit down mm-hmm. with Tony at the Fountain Blue Hotel. And, and I remember flying and I was thinking, you know what? Soak all of this in. This, this is something special. This is lightning in a bottle. This isn't your normal TV show. So my first day I stepped on the set, I just thought, I'm just taking this all in. I don't know how long it's going to last. Originally, I was only supposed to do a couple of episodes. Okay. Uh, you know, I had the intention, or maybe they just didn't tell me, was not to make me a series regular. But uh, so I just thought, I'm just going to 
I'm just going to enjoy this and and soak it all in for what it's worth now because it is. Yeah. I already knew it was special. A lot of you know when those guys started, they didn't know what it was going to be. When I came on, I already knew it was something pretty amazing. Yeah. So so two questions there actually is. Um, were you a fan of the show before you came on it? And then secondly, like, as you were making, you kind of alluded to, did you know the effect it would have on pop culture and entertainment years later, like looking at it now? Well, you know, I watched it in the very beginning and I was a fan and, uh, I did have mixed emotions, you know, I, you know, as an Italian American, a lot of people flip flop back and forth how they felt about it, you know, because uh, mm. people were seeing it a certain way. And then there was the scene where uh, Ralphie, um, Joey Pants, uh, kills the dancer, mm-hmm. you know, and it was just so violent and it just shut me down. I just thought, yeah, yeah, you know, okay, I'm not going to watch this anymore. And I stopped watching until they offered me the part. And then I went back and watched them all. And I said, oh, I was wrong. This is... <laughs> This is way deeper than that. And and the genius of David Chase is the fact that he had Joey Pant do that at that moment in the show, because from what I understand, he thought that people were idolizing these characters too much. They were, you know, they were they were making these people heroes. And he wanted to show that, you know what, they they're animals. You know, they they do some pretty horrific things and and killing yep. that innocent, you know, sweet stripper, you know, she and she was so spectacular in one little episode, a couple of scenes, she just stole your heart. And uh I think it really put the show in perspective. And that was the kind of that it's like we were talking before about the way David Chase would just weave things and and throw a, a curveball in there when you're not expecting it. And that's what makes it so rich and and uh, worthwhile and why and now your next point was the cultural uh aspect of it and how it's lasted and now it's you know it's over 20 years since it's premiered it's been off the air for 14 years mm-hmm. and now it's one of the most binge shows i had i i get a, a, a contacted by fans that are 17 years old 18 years old that have watched it you know i went to sopranos con there were kids there that were three years old when the show ended and they know every line wow you know so it's got this it's got this whole new life. New York Times did an article on it last week about how, why young people are watching the show, why all young people are, are watching the show now. Because uh, it really did define an era of what it means to be a man and masculinity and, and everybody trying to find their place. In the, you know, there are a lot of universal themes in the show beyond what we originally thought it was, it just being a mob movie, mob show. Yeah, beyond just like the you know, the killing and yeah, uh, right. stuff. There, there's so many questions that it was asking that I feel like a lot of TV shows hadn't scratched yet right. and paved the way. Like you said, all younger people getting into it now, we were, we grew up with Breaking Bad and stuff, but Sopranos is really the, the predecessor to that. There's no know? break. There's no Breaking Bad without Sopranos. And I think if you ask the creator of Breaking Bad, I think he's, uh, he pretty much would admit that himself because yeah. you never, you never had a character like Tony Soprano, somebody that was, so evil, but yet there's some reason you're rooting for him because somehow he's trying to do the right thing at times. He's trying to be a good father and family man and, and everything else. You know, there has to be a vulnerability and a weakness <clears throat> that make you want to root for him a little. Um, and that you, know, you never had a character like that on TV before. And then you had him in Mad Men, you had him in Ray Donovan, you had it in Breaking Bad, uh, yep. you know, so that really, there wouldn't have been any of those shows without the Sopranos first. 
And you've kind of been a, across a lot of them too. You you starred in Ray Donovan and Mad Men. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've you know if somebody pointed out to me they were doing you know CNN does a thing on best shows of decades, and somebody pointed out and said you know Ray you might not be a household name Ray, but you know I was watching the decades of TV and you've been on some of the biggest shows in in each decade. You know I was on L.A. Law, which was a groundbreaking show in the eighties, and then in Night Court and Dynasty was you know. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then even I was on Transparent a few years ago, which was very big for this last decade, groundbreaking show. So I, I've been lucky that way. Uh, you know, not the big star, but I've uh, had my toe dipped in, uh, in a lot of the best television over the last 30, 40 years. Definitely. Yeah. And overall, like that, that I'm sure I, I'm preaching to the choir right now, but, um, that uh, acting business is a, you're a lucky business in general. Could you, could you talk about how you got started? Like, how did acting come about and your big break and all that? Well, the, I'm still, the big break I'm hoping is tomorrow. <laughs> I'm, st- I'm still, still kind of wait. You know, that's the interesting thing about this business. Unless you're a big star, unless you're one of those really big stars. You know, I have a million friends that are at my level, a little above my level or below my level. We've all known each other 30, 40 years. And uh, the thing is, you always feel like you're still striving. You always feel like you're trying to get over the next hurdle. There's always another hurdle that you want to you want to get over. So um, that kind of keeps you in it. It's like the carrot in front of your nose. Uh, you just want to keep doing it. I first started, I did my first play in um, freshman year in high school. I went to Christ the King High School in Queens. And mm-hmm. uh, I'll tell, I've told this story before, but um, the first week or second week of school, you had to sign up for an extracurricular activity. And I was very small. I was only four foot 11 my freshman year. Uh, before I shot up to this massive height. Um, and I didn't know what to do. I, you know, I, sports, I, you know, I like sports, but I can never compete with, you know, other guys. And one of my friends was going to basketball. Another guy was going to go out. He played the flute. So he was going to go in the, I didn't know what I was going to do. So we're walking down the hallway and I saw a sign that said auditions today. And I looked in and the front row was filled with the prettiest girls in the school. So I told my friends, you guys go ahead. I'm going in here. And I went in and I auditioned for the play uh, Inherit the Wind, and I got the part. And uh, that was literally it. I remember the I remember the curtain opening. It was a huge stage. My character opened the play, huge high school auditorium. The curtain opened. I felt the light. I felt the audience. The you know, and uh, that was pretty much it. I felt it felt right from the very beginning. And uh, so I did all plays in high school. High school in the summer we did theater, and that's where I. Um, that's when it started. So it's like, like that, a lightning strike. It's, it, re- that, it really was. Yeah. That energy on the stage. I mean, I'll tell you, I'm, I, I was speaking to you uh, the other day about it is I, I play trumpet and I, uh, I, I mean, I'm not a, a professional musician, but I, I've done a, a plenty of shows and just that energy you get from a crowd is, is unlike anything. There's nothing like it. I try to do, uh, I try to do a play a year or every two years at maximum somewhere. Uh, even now, uh, the pandemic, of course, shut it all down. But I enjoy that so much. It just, it reminds you of what you're doing. Because sometimes when you're doing TV, everything is so disjointed. You never really feel like, Sopranos was different because of the writing. But other shows, mm-hmm. you you never really feel like you're acting. And, you know, it's all done piecemeal. And uh, But then you get on stage and you rehearse for a few weeks with good actors and it's a good writing. And it, you remember why you became an actor. Yeah, Um 
it's interesting you said so what do you what do you mean by by the piecemeal nature of recording like a tv show well you know nothing shot in order you shoot the scenes over and over and over and uh you know, sometimes they're just short little scenes. And it, like I said, it's not in order. And even on The Sopranos, sometimes they would shoot the whole season before it would air. So sometimes you'd shoot something from uh, episode one of a season and episode four of a season, you know, and go backwards. Um, so it's really hard to get a sense and a flow unless you had a part like Gandolfini or those regulars that were working all the time and they were just getting deeper and deeper into their characters. Yeah. But in general, a lot of times when you're guest starring on TV shows, you're, you're just serving a purpose for that particular episode. You're the bad guy, you're the cop, whatever it is. Um, you never get, you never get to delve as deep, deeply into a character as you do when you're rehearsing a play and doing a, a full fledged production. Makes sense. Yeah. Is that is that hard or off-putting when you're recording a show and you're jumping around episodes trying to like familiarize yourself with what happened? How it, did we get here? Well, it's it's you know, it's a different skill set than doing theater. And you know, I've been doing it so long, it's uh it's not that it's it's not that it's difficult. And you know, you just sometimes it's easier because you get second takes, you get more takes, and mm-hmm. you know, you get to do the same piece over and over because they shoot the master shot, then the close-up and a two shot. So you really could refine your performance in that sense. Uh, and I always try every take, I try to find something new or go a little deeper, even within a, you know, two minute scene. Uh, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So, so talk me through from when you first got into theater and, and into some of your TV roles, like, uh, once you, you said it was from that point at like lightning strike, did you, realize you had a passion for film and, and well, I didn't know, I didn't know. I really was just dedicated to theater at that point. And um, so then I, to appease my parents, I went to St. John's university uh, thinking I was going to go to law school. Um, (laughs) But St. John's didn't have a real theater department, but they had a theater and I auditioned for a play my freshman year in college as well. And I got it. And I realized that there was some talent there and there was very little, uh, faculty uh, oversight. So we as students kind of took over the theater and we built a nice little theater company there. So I just kept doing theater and theater. When I got out of college, I thought, you know, I'm never going to do a commercial. I'm never going to do TV. I'm, you know, I'm just a theater, theater actor. I just do theater. Uh, And then I I worked with an avant-garde theater company down at La Mama in the East Village in the 70s. And then we had another uh, company called Bond Street Theater Coalition, um, which used masks and puppets and, and uh, Commedia dell'arte. And they're interested. We started this company in the 70s and they're still going strong, that company that I started. Wow. Uh, yeah, they've performed all over the world. They had performed when the Taliban first fell in Afghanistan years ago. They performed there for refugees, for kids that had never seen entertainment before. They had never heard music. They That's didn't cool. even understand the concept of entertainment. They didn't know how to laugh. They didn't know how to watch something. And, oh and, I, and wow. I had lost touch with these people. And, you know, two of the original members are still doing it 40 something years later. And we just started it on a whim in a loft in, uh, in, on Bond Street in, in the 70s. And it's still That's going. That's pretty cool. That's so pretty then, amazing. Yeah. And then, you know, then you, you kind of get sucked in. It's like, well, yeah, I guess I'll do a commercial. Like, you know, I could pay the rent if I do a commercial and, you know, and then you just want to do more. And then it just started real slow for me, you know, one line on a TV show and 
it took me a lot of years before it really started going. And then I got a recurring role on um, L.A. Law, and which was a big show in the 80s. And uh, it was just a five episode arc. But the show was, you know, the key you could do so much TV. But if you get on a show that the industry watches, it makes all the difference in the world. You know, the, and back then there were only three networks. Right. So there weren't that many choices of things to watch. And L.A. Law was was the Emmy winning show at the time. And I came on in the mm-hmm. second season, had a nice five episode arc. And from then I started working more. They, then I got offered Dynasty. Then I got offered Night Court and uh, kind of snowballed from there. But you need that first kind of break. And then, you know, a lot of lean, hungry years in between. And then something else would come up and then dry spells. And then, you know, um, and now here we are. I, I can't believe it's been so many years, but in a, in another dimension where we're (laughs) speaking over, (laughs) it's crazy. It's been wild. Um, so how did the, how did the Sopranos come up, come about? Oh, that's an interesting story. I had done an episode of a show called, um, pros and cons. I guess it was in the early nineties. It starred, uh, James Earl Jones, uh, and Richard Crenna. Richard Crenna was a very famous uh, actor as well. He's since passed away, but you might not remember him. Um, and I had a guest star part on it. And um, I had to audition. I couldn't, I, I must have auditioned five or six times for a guest star part, which is very unusual, but it was really a big storyline. He was the whole, the, the guest star was the whole show, which was unusual. Okay. And it was with those two great stars. And I got that part. And the episode was written by a guy who was his first TV episode ever named Frank Renzulli. So he wrote that episode. Basically, I was playing him. I was playing an obnoxious comic that hired these two private investigators to protect me. And um, so Frank Renzulli was the writer. And then after that episode, he wrote a pilot with the same producers of that show the following year called The Great Defender, about an Italian-American lawyer. Um, Very, very funny script. And he said, you know, from the time he started writing it, he thought of me as, as the main character. He based, kind of based on me. And then I tested at the network and I killed, but I didn't get it, even though it was written for me. They gave it to Michael Rispoli, who ended up being on The, the Sopranos as well. And the show went about six episodes. But um, then Frank went on to write for The Sopranos the first season. And that's when he connected with Terry Winter. And he showed Terry Winter the first pros and cons thing that I had done early. So Terry Winter always remembered me and he occasionally would pitch me. And then came the episode in season four of the um, the intervention with Christopher. Mm-hmm. And uh, I auditioned for that. I had to put myself on tape. It's called the self-tape. And in those days, yep. now it's just you do it on your phone and you send it in. But in those days, you had to do it on VHS and get oh it to God. FedEx and FedEx to them and they need it the next day. So I auditioned for the uh, intervention part and I thought I did well, but um, I didn't get it. And they said, no, they really liked you, but maybe something else. And I thought, yeah, I've heard that a million times. Not, and you know, not this, but something else. And then you never hear from them again. But uh, a few weeks later, they called and they said, David Chase wants you to put yourself on tape again for this part called Little Carmine. Uh, And I read the description. He said, Little Carmine, anything but little, upwards of 250 or 300 pounds, sweating profusely with a twitching. And I called my agent. I said, you know, there's gotta be a mistake here you know this isn't me i this is not he said david wants you to read for this part he saw your tape he went so again i had to borrow a camera set it up shoot it and get the vhs tape and it was on a compact vhs then i had to transfer it to a full vhs and run to the fedex by 4 30 i literally 
just got it to the guy. And wow. um, then I got the part. And it was only supposed to be a couple of episodes. They said it might come back, but it's, it's probably just two episodes. And then uh, the rest, as they say, is history. And, uh, wow. Yeah. I did. Yeah, I, I, I don't, yeah. I don't even understand I, I, how you would, the VHS recorded oh, on. Yeah. It was, it, it was, I mean, now everything is self-taped since the pandemic, which is a whole other, I don't really like it. In the old days, you used to go in the room, you'd hold the pages, you'd audition. The director would say, oh, that was great, Ray, but maybe don't be so angry on this line. Try this. And mm-hmm. you develop a relationship. You get the part or you don't get the part, but you had a real shot. Now it's like, you know, they just, they get these self-tapes and it's like a dating service. They could just scroll. Oh, they don't like the first line. It mm-hmm. used to be they'd have to sit and watch your whole audition. And sometimes you don't get them to the last moment, you know? Um, but Did you uh, feel was, it was kind of like that with the VHS though? Because you only had like one shot to get it on or? You only, yeah, I didn't do that many takes because in those days you couldn't, I couldn't edit like I do on my phone and say, oh, let's do another one. Let's do another one. It was like, yeah. you know, I got it and that's, you had to send it. Uh, yeah, I couldn't edit like that in, in those days. Um, I felt pretty good. I didn't think I was going to get it, but I gave it my own spin. I mispronounced Ver- Versailles as Versailles in my audition. Yeah. And okay. uh, they, they kind of like that. Uh, and um, so I think that's kind of what got me the part. That's the the start of all the malaprops. <laughs> yeah. and I mean, they, they had given me the hint that he's that he's not as smart as he thinks he is. Uh, but they said he has a, an interest in history, but he doesn't always quite kind of get it right. So that that was a clue I took and then uh, kind of ran with it. And then they ran with it. So you get the part and you do the two episodes. At what point do they start saying, all right, you're, this is going to be a bigger role for you? St- uh, after that was the end. Those are the last two episodes in season four. And then season five, one of the early episodes, my father dies. So... Mm-hmm then I realized, okay, this might, you know, they, then I'm coming up from Florida to, uh, and then that was a recurring role. And then they made me a, a series regular after that. So okay, the first so time you become a series regular, the first time you watch the show, I can say this. And in the opening credits and you see those drive safely water ta- uh, gas tanks, you know, yeah. and my name shot across the screen the first time in the opening credits, you know, how it would go to that music, you know, I'd been in the business a long time, but man, was that thrilling. That oh, was wow. Just, I can imagine. I mean, I was just like, you know, oh, this is real. This is, yeah. you know, and the, to be in those, like, because the opening credits were iconic. Even just the, the credits were iconic, you know. The song, I, I bumped that oh, song my, all the time. It's so good. You know, one of the one of the big highlights of, you know, they have these Sopranos cons now. We've done a couple of them. And mm-hmm. the first one, uh, Alabama 3 was there. And they the band you know, they're from England and they played live and a couple of us jumped up on the stage. And I swear to God, we were, I was dancing with Max, uh, Matt Servito and, uh, and uh, Catherine Narducci who played uh, uh, Charmaine Bucco and uh, Mm -hmm. he played the FBI agent Harris. And we were like just dancing. And it's like, at that point I was a fan. I was so not part of the show. The music was playing and I was just like, I completely was just, it was really an odd flip over and then i heard somebody yell hey there's carmine jr and i was like oh yeah right <laughs> That's, i'm in the i'm in the i was in the show i'm not it's just funny. a you, fan you could feel that like obviously as a big sopranos fan myself watching interviews on youtube you, you could tell like all you guys seemed like 
you were fans of the show. You guys were like a big family together. Did, yeah. Did you- yeah. And there's a, I, I don't know if you've ever seen, we did a thing called the making of Cleaver. It was a bonus feature. I was going to ask you about it. I watched it the other day for the first that, time. You know, they just literally said, Ray, come to the set with Michael and the ki- guy that played the uh, director. I wish I could mm-hmm. remember his name. Oh, he was so terrific. He really just kept up with us. He was so great. Anyway, and they said, we're just going to, this is like a behind the scenes of the making of Cleaver. Just stay in character and we'll, and just talk. So we didn't, nothing was written. We just completely ad libbed there, just like a real behind the scenes thing. And one of the lines, I, I think I said something like, and when this is all over, you know, this is really like a family, no pun intended, you know, because the whole thing was, you know, it really was, you know, it is a cliche, but. You know, the thing about The Sopranos, I've done so many TV shows and often the stars, when they say cut or they're setting up for a new scene, the stars run back to their trailer and everything. But The Sopranos wasn't like that. Everybody would just sit around like a bunch of guys on the stoop, just shooting the, can I say shit on the show? Just shooting. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, just a bunch of guys on the street just talking. And uh, that was a big, fun, that was a big, big part of it. You were just a bunch of guys hanging out. Yeah. And. I mean, you kind of you're kind of touching on the point a little bit. Uh, how how was it working with with James? I, you had a lot of scenes with him. I you know I was fortunate that I had a lot of one on one scenes with him, including my very first one, which was pretty pretty in, intimidating. That sit down down in um, in in Florida because yeah. uh, and I had never met anybody since I put myself on tape. I just flew straight to Florida, had never met a soul. So when I walked on the set to shoot that scene, I was really. Oh, it was straight from from tape straight to film. Yeah, <laughs> straight. Wow. In, in, okay, in, and not even on the set. It was at the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami. We had to wait till the restaurant closed, and then there were hundreds of people watching, oh hundreds all because the place is glass, just enclosed. And you know, he was such a magnet. I mean, when he walked around, every eye on the place was just on because he was such a powerful presence. And then to just sit down and have that one-on-one scene with him which was a pretty good scene. That's uh, great. It great was, scene. it was, and to, you know, kind of hold my own and with him, it, it, it felt great, but he's just, um, you know, I've said it before. He was one of those actors that he was, he was like a working class actor. He was a character actor. He was like us, just guys that just make a living, except he happened to be the biggest star on the planet, but mm-hmm. he was still just a hardworking, working class actor that just wanted to do the best job he could. And uh, he wanted you to do the best job he could. And he was so good. I mean, you see it in those scenes. He could just give you a look, you know, just, and you couldn't help but react because he was that powerful. You know, it's like tennis or anything else. When you work with really good actors, it it ups your game. And, um, you know, everybody's best on that show in their scenes with Jimmy, I think. It's um, it's funny. I, I an acting. I mean, this is a common phrase, but uh, an acting friend uh, mine from high school would always say it as uh, "acting is reacting." That's he would what, always requote it. That's and all I, it is. It's leaving yourself alone and reacting. That's it. Yeah. It's interesting to think about. I mean, as a non-actor, to think about how you guys work. I mean, it, yeah. if you have, if you if you're if you have that presence, like you're saying, where everyone sticks around shoots the shit after the after cut and probably makes it so much easier to do that and mm-hmm. i would imagine that was, yeah it was a big part of it and plus it just 
that just helped the atmosphere of the of the show itself because that's the way those guys were in the show. So it mm-hmm. helped to be that way off the show, you know. And you you were also fortunate enough to not only James but Frankie Valley and yeah. I was just thinking. Frank- I was just thinking of that. You know, I remember I remember when Frankie was first on the show. So somebody would just mention a song and he would just break into the song, and it was like. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I mean, I remember walking down the hall with it was I remember one of my first scenes, I was walking down the hall and it was Stevie Van Zandt and Frankie Valley. And I'm standing there. And I'm thinking, is this real? Am I standing here with Stevie Van Zandt from the E Street Band and Frankie Valley? Yet I'm shooting a TV series. It was it was very, very surreal. And I had a lot of fun with Frankie because he also lived in L.A. So we would they would put us up together in the same uh, building in the same hotel in New York. So we'd have dinner together every night. Oh, nice. He took me up to Rayo's in Harlem to, and uh, that was a great experience. Uh, me, uh, he, I, and um, Joe Santos, who's since, since passed away, terrific actor. Um, yeah. I have great, great memories of, of those times. Down to earth guy. Yeah. He was very down to earth and, you know, he, yeah. Yeah. It's terrific. And, you know, just, again, he, he was, He's an icon, you know, yeah. everybody grew up listening. And I remember on one set, he goes, you know, Ray, um, this guy wrote this musical about my life. They're doing it at the La Jolla Playhouse in California. It's, a, you know, it's about my life. And I remember saying, yeah, Frankie, that'll do real well. And of course, <laughs> Jersey Boys. <laughs> <The> Jersey Boys. <laughs> Huge. Jersey, oh, my God. Jersey Boys. Yeah, maybe I, maybe I didn't pick that one so well. But yeah. <laughs> that is pretty crazy. Yeah. Wow. Um, and not only them, but. Sir Ben Kingsley, oh. the whole Cleaver storyline. I, I got to hear about that. And How Lauren that? Bacall. Yeah. You yeah. Know, I, you know, there's, I've always been a huge Lauren Bacall fan. She's in it. And, and Christopher mentions the movie in that scene to have the, the, to have and have not is the name of the movie, but he calls, he calls it the haves and the haves nots or something <laughs> like that. And uh, it's a movie that she did with Humphrey Bogart when she was 19 years old, 19. And he was the biggest star on the planet. And he was in his 40s. It was her first mm-hmm. film. And she comes on at 19 and just steals that movie with a presence and a, a sexuality. And it was just, originally, she was supposed to be a small part in the movie. And then they, they saw the chemistry between the two of them. And she ended up, if you've never seen the movie, you really should. Because uh, she's just spectacular. And so it was so thrilling that when I found out she was going to be in it. And Sir Ben... You know, we were told you have to call him Sir Ben. You know, don't talk to him if he doesn't talk to you, and you know, like that. Oh, it okay. couldn't have been. It couldn't have been more different. He was. We had so much fun. You know, the scene we're just sitting around the pool, mm-hmm. and in between shots, we're just sitting around. It's just three guys sitting around having fun. It was. It, it was really. It was really a great, great experience. Yeah, you have to be a, a good sport to kind of play almost a parody of yourself and he did yeah yeah. (laughs) he had to play yourself especially as being a little bit of a schmuck a little you know yeah but uh yeah that was you could see the scene you could see the look on michael and 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 my face when lauren bacall comes up there's no acting there we're both like and even though we had met her earlier in the day we're just when she walks up and he says betty and we look at her and we see her our faces are just like and that's just there's no acting there man that's just reacting that's just wow. That's Lauren wow. Bacall. I got to go back and watch that scene. Now. Yeah, it's a great scene. There's a lot of yeah. There's a lot of good stuff in that scene. Yeah. So the whole Cleaver storyline is like one of the best parts of the show, in my opinion. I mean, did that 
was that a disp- i know it's like the godfather meets the ring the yeah. godfather meets saw, saw, but- saw meets the godfather that's my yeah. favorite line yeah is that was great- there good was there like inspiration from that did you know like was that taken from anything or- i have no you know well christopher always wanted to get into hollywood you know that yeah that mm-hmm. was that was a big and then i was just watching the many saints of newark and his father was called holly wasn't his grandfather hollywood Hollywood Dick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if that was if what if that has anything to do with it uh, subconsciously for him. But uh, you know, he, um, and I remember my character kind of leaves the mob, right? You know, I kind of turn yep. over everything, and then I remember we were at a, a DVD party or something, and I didn't know Michael. I had never had any scenes with Michael. We, you know, I maybe just said hello to him in the hall or at a, a table read, because uh, my stuff was always very isolated, so I didn't have a lot of stuff before Cleaver. My stuff was only just with Tony or my guys. So I didn't yep. interact with anybody else because I would just fly in, shoot my stuff and fly out. Um, but I remember at one party I was there um, with some cousins of yours, Nadine. Oh, really? Nadine. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, wow. Nadine was with me and um, I brought her to that party with her. And uh, I remember Michael comes over and he goes, hey, Ray, next season you and I have some stuff together. And I was like, Wow, because I thought I was kind of done. I was out of the mob. What were they going to do with me? And then mm-hmm. they came up with that whole cleaver thing, and I was just, I was just hysterical. thrilled. I was just hysterical. Thrilled. Yeah, I mean, and and like we mentioned before, the making of cleaver thing to me that just, I just love that piece so so much because we just we just did it, and we were both so committed, and we worked off each other so well in that thing. And I don't know if you remember, if you watched the making of cleaver. There's a scene where I say, can we get some water over here? And I, I snap my fingers and some guy brings us over two bottles yeah. of water. That's mm. Alan Taylor, who directed Many Saints of Newark. He's the, no way. He's the director. And I always bring that up to him. You know, I always show that little clip and, you know, I'll send them like that little clip of, you know, could you get me some water and him bring us over the water? That's funny. Because <laughs> that was just wow. ad-libbed. He just happened to be standing off camera. I just snapped my fingers and he brought that. <laughs> yeah, man, you were really funny in that in that little short thing. There's this one part where you're sitting with my, uh, Michael, you yeah. and the director. Yeah. And you're kind of like letting the director, I think the line is, uh, oh, we heard of this really great up and coming director and he recommended oh. this guy. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. This really hot director. Yeah. And he knew. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, that, was a, that was a total ad lib. I think Michael was going to go. Michael was going to go and say it's him. And then I just jumped in and said, and yeah. he recommended. <laughs> that's, I'm so glad you caught that because that's one of my proudest moments. I thought that was one of the was best ad libs, really best in the moment ad libs I'd ever done. <laughs> yeah. So that, was- that, that made me think after watching Cleaver, like obviously you have the scenes in The Sopranos where you guys go to the premiere and stuff. How much of that was actually filmed? I think Cleaver. just what you saw. Okay. Just what you saw. No, no pun intended. Saw meets the Godfather. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that's all they shot. Everybody expected them to shoot a movie. I had pitched an idea. They had already written that episode that the movie was made. But I pitched an idea to Terry that um, Christopher and uh, and Carmine go on entourage, right? And go to uh, Jeremy Piven's character to try to get the kid to be the young kid in our movie. That'd be so Wouldn't funny. that have been wow. great? And, I, and great idea. And he says no. And my idea was then we just B 
beat the, the hell out of him. You know, grab him by the tie. I was going to staple his tie to the desk. That was my idea, you know, because he says no. Because that kid would have been good as the young guy, you know, if you were going to do it. That, mm-hmm. And I thought, what a great crossover crossover episode at that time. But they had already written the the premiere episode so that the movie was already shot. But uh, I always, I, it was during the off season, I just, it just hit me and I thought that would be a great, what an idea. Scene. Wouldn't wow. have been a great scene. Look at that. So I guess I'm smarter than David Chase and Terry Winter and all those guys. I guess so. I David guess. Chase, if you're listening and we know you are. <laughs> I think he's a big fan of your podcast. Yeah, right. <laughs> mm. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, what was I going to – something about Cleaver. I don't know. Just that that's one of my favorite parts of the show I, want, I wanted to say. Yeah. And so you were talking about ad-libs. Um, how about like the rest of the show? Like, no, was there room for any no, like stuff like no, that? No, no, no. Everything, everything was scripted. You know, Jimmy could say, "Well, I'm going to change this line," but everybody else, if I remember correctly, you said it as written because the writing's that good. You know, yeah. When the it's like True. I'm not going to make that better. I'm not mm. going to make Terry Winter's writing better. He wrote those. He wrote some of the best lines. I you know. Yeah, you don't want to mess with, but yeah. I, you know, sometimes always off the cuff stuff happens. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but rarely, maybe some actions. I think you know, I, there's a scene where I talk to Tony about a uh, hat in hand on bended knees going to see Phil. You know, mm-hmm. you know, and I talk him into going to see Phil, and he swats away the breadsticks or something. Something like that might have been, you know, in the moment if I gotcha. remember. But, uh, but lines, particularly, I mean, Jimmy could. If he wanted to, he would maybe suggest something. But uh, usually, everybody pretty much it was as written. Got you. But uh, what? So specifically, what about your character? So obviously, he grows throughout the. He has a, a really great growth from when he first appears to the finale. Yeah. You know. Yeah. How did you? Did you like kind of work with the writers to find nooks and crannies? Like, did you evolve the character in your own, the way you play portrayed him? Or, or no, anyway? it was always a surprise. You know, I I never I never of course I had no input whatsoever. Uh, in the development of the character. I never knew where it was going. And you wouldn't get a script till you got to the table read and then you're reading it and it's just for the first time and it's a surprise. Yeah. So they developed all those all those uh, those moments. And you know, I think Little Carmine did have one of the biggest arcs, I think, of any of any character. Mo- he you know, he grew the most, I think. And uh, yeah. ultimately if you look back, you know, he was always regarded as the idiot. Um, but when you look back on the show and I'm finding people now they realize that he really was pretty insightful. He might have not used the right words, but everything he basically said at every single moment was kind of right and insightful. And his 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 view of people, you know, he says, you know, even the first scene, you know, Johnny Sack, uh, he's a he's a greedy motherfucker, you know, you know, mm-hmm. he's like, the, you know, he reminds me of uh, Louis to whatever's finance minister, you know, that he wants more than he deserves. And, you know, that was all true and that all played out. So he was very insightful. And of course, that really great golf course scene where I talk about my father's dream and it's not about being great boss, thing. it's about being happy. And uh, and then I'm telling Tony about how my wife said she didn't want to be the wealthiest widow on Long Island and she wanted me to quit. And, you know, it cuts to Jimmy's face and in a second, you just, it's such a fleeting second, you just see him filled with kind of an envy, you know, it's like, well, I don't have that with Carmela. Carmela yeah. would never want me to stop. So she doesn't have enough money that she'd give up stuff. So, you know, and it, it and that's a really, 
I think that's a kind of a turning point moment for Tony. I think that 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 moment really st- stays with him. That there's more to life than just this. And yeah, uh, and and let's face it, Little Carmine's one of the only one that that gets out unscathed. You know, yeah. and he lives happy. He has his, enough money. He has all that he needs. You know, and he's he's happy with his family. You know, he loves his wife. And uh, um, you know, I see him as being one of the success stories of the show. Yeah, he's he's one of the. Even though, like you said, he's portrayed as being like the goofy guy, yeah. but he's pretty smart. He's, <laughs> he's yeah, he was you know smart it, enough to know. I'm either like Tony says. I think at one point, there's only two paths for me. I'm going to die or I'm going to be put in jail. Right. Car- yeah. one of the little Carmine found another way. Yeah. 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 So I think so. Yeah. That's one of my, fa- I, that was actually almost one of the, the quote of the episode. It, it's not, uh, it wasn't about being boss. It was about being happy. Yeah, I, I yeah. love that. That's a really great scene. Yeah. Uh, oh, and there's so many great lines in that monologue. It's, you know, it's a big monologue and uh, you know, I had the dream and I, I give my father this gift for his hundredth birthday and it's, wrapped in a mellifluous box, you know, it's, yeah. it's just the mellifluous box is always one of my, my favorites too. Yeah. yeah. And the, the scene where you, you order the Arnold Palmer, which you're, you're drinking I, now in the there spirit. You go. spirit. Hmm. That's the genius of Terry Winter. It's such a subtle moment. You know, we sit down and, he, and Tony's a little pissed at me already because the family's in trouble. And then also the first thing I say, I would have asked you to play, but we already had our fourth, you know, playing, and it's obvious that he didn't, you know, yeah, he didn't want to play with Tony. Um, so there's a little tension there. And then little Carmine orders and he orders seared ahi and mixed greens. And, and Tony leans in, he goes, I'll have a Philly cheesesteak and an Arnold Palmer. You know, I'm, like he's purposely ordering the complete opposite. The opposite. Yep. What does little Carmine do? He says, you know what, make, I'll have an Arnold Palmer too. I always, so it's like... Little Carmine was smart enough, and it's also the writing of Terry Winter, to try to find a little common ground. You know, even in the simplicity of changing his order to what Tony has. You know? I, yeah. I always thought that that was a, a very intelligent moment on his, on his part to, to do that. Um, I, I, I didn't think about it that way. Yeah. But it, it's even also kind of like a way you could say that Carmine knows how to manipulate a little bit manipulate he he's a a manipulator himself yeah 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 but there's actually a look he you know in this the scene we were talking about before where i get him to go to uncle philly's house right to on Mm -hmm. hat in hand on bended knees you know think about when he first come in comes in he's sincerely asking tony about aj who had uh, attempted suicide you know and it's sincere it's not like the other guys the other guys when they talk about stuff it's like they're just buttering them up you know and mm-hmm. you really get a sense that little Carmine really cared about his friend Tony's situation that he's going through with his son. And he also, you know, Tony's furious. He doesn't want to go talk to Phil, but little Carmine really talks him into it, to going to Phil, you know? Yeah. Which not many people could do, to, you know? And he does no, it in kind of a gentle people. way, you know? Yeah. Well, he was on the precipice of an enormous crossroad. <laughs> 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 so many lines in the bag that we oh, could just throw out. Yeah, oh, I could do it all day long. People yell yeah. them out to me all the time. You know, we're in a stagmire. That was another one. Or the, it's under my subspecies. That's a great one. I have That's nine pictures one. under my subspecies. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Five in the South Beach Trumpet series alone. Um, 
I can't believe I remember these lines 15, 16 years later, but that when, when the writing's that good. Yeah. So kind of in the same vein, mm-hmm. I, I was looking up some stuff before the interview today and I found a couple theories about little Carmine that I just want to like bounce off you, okay. see, see, see what your reactions are. Uh, the first of them is where we've been touching on it a little bit is that even though he's portrayed as a goofy character, um, secretly Carmine is kind of a chess master. He knows how to manipulate, um, you know, in the, the meeting of the minds with Phil and Tony, he brings up Phil's brother mm-hmm. right when they're about to come to an understanding. Yeah. Um, uh, he yeah. claims with his dad about Tony. If that, yeah, right. If that, if he doesn't say that your brother, Billy, whatever happened there, which is... <laughs> <laughs> somehow that line, whatever happened there, may be the most often quoted line. I'll I'll post a picture on Instagram of like a horse or something, and they'll say, "Oh, the horse, whatever happened there." You know, it's everybody. <laughs> everything is whatever happened there. I just got back from Hawaii. Oh, Hawaii, whatever happened there. Happened there. Uh, and I talked to Terry about this about two months ago. We had a phone call with Terry Winter, and I, I said, "Yeah, I got to say this line." Uh, it just, re- he says, I don't even remember writing it. It wasn't an important line to us. It really, but it just somehow, it, it was somehow the, the timing of the moment and what happens afterwards that it just, uh, but I don't, you know, I'd like to take credit for it, but I didn't play him. I did play him as, that I, he was smart. I mean, he's, he really was getting them together pretty masterfully at that point, mm-hmm. but he goes a little too far. He just, he couldn't help himself, you know. Um, you know, had he stopped there, the show's pretty much over. There's no war between New yeah. York. New York. So, uh, but I don't I don't think he was that Machiavellian to, to set up that fight. But I do think he, like I said before, he was very insightful into people's character. And, uh, and I think he was a really honest guy. I think he was... Uh, very genuine. Genuine. And he really cared about Tony and he cared about his family. And um, yeah, you know, he just sometimes was in over his head, but he was not a bad guy. And I think he was a really good judge of character. Definitely agree. Yeah. And yeah. then uh, the the other theory here, this one's a little out there, but just I want, I want to hear your reaction to it, is that there's a big theory going around that little Carmine is one of the top contenders for the person who could have possibly killed Tony in the finale ordered the hit on him. Yeah. You know, when I first got signed on to the show, I don't know where I heard it, but there were rumors that I, at the end would whack Tony. I remember somebody telling me that I don't remember who it was. Uh, and you know, that was always in my mind. Um, but then as the character developed, I really didn't see that happening. Uh, you know, it would kind of make sense in that last meeting. There's a very subtle moment in the last meeting where, you know, Butchie's kind of in control at that time, That in that big warehouse, that freezing cold warehouse we shot all night long, it was so cold, um, where we finally say, well, will you tell us where he is, where Phil is or something? And, yep. and Butchie just gives a little glance over to me and I just give him the okay. Yep. You know, so even though I was out and at this point I'm just being a mediator, I think he still he's he still was a kind of a go to guy for that was a big decision to take Phil out. And uh, and he in that he in a very subtly he okays that and then Philly does it. Yeah. I mean Butchie Butchie does it. Yeah. Yeah, he Carmine even becomes like someone that 
the New York crime family looks to for advice. You know, yeah. they come to you to mediate situations. Right, you know? right, and, right. And uh, that glance is actually one of the supporting things of the theory. And yeah. plus the yeah. fact that Tony whacked Rusty and um, right. that uh, he kills Chris. I don't know if Carmine knew that he killed Chris. Yeah, but I, don't, you guys I, don't think pretty- knew, I don't think I knew that. But I will because, uh, you know, when I in that same meeting of minds thing, when I say a lot of things are going on and I say somebody killed my best friend and uh, something, something. And in time, I'll I do say and in time, I'll figure that out or I'll do something about that, you know? Yeah. Uh, because, but you know, Carmine never really ordered any hits, you know, uh, or got involved in any hits. Yeah, no. You know, but- uh, he was he was peripherally involved, and he okayed the hit on Peeps for killing, uh, um, for, you know, for Joey uh, when he would make hit Joey Peeps when uh, Tony B hit Johnny Peeps. Uh, yep. Yeah, uh, and that was a powerful scene. That uh, Joey Peeps' funeral. Remember Johnny Sachs freaking out about looking at him, he goes and kisses the mother, you know, and it's a very, yeah. you know, and I, there were, there were moments where I, you know, like I said, I never knew what was coming next, but I would try to get hints. Like the scene at my father's funeral when I challenge him about the Opus Dei um, the rosary beads in my father's hand, you know, in my father's funeral. You know, when yeah. I read that scene, when I did that scene, I thought, okay, maybe this guy is a little bit more power. Maybe he is going to, go you know so there were always those moments where i thought the character was going to probably take over but then we mm-hmm. have the scene where i say you know i wanted nothing more than being boss that's i just wanted to be boss i was obsessed with being boss yeah but then my wife said what she said so uh all those things that happened before make total sense that he really was preparing himself to take over but then I, he decided. He decided. Found another path. There's another way to go. There's another way to go. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Just, he was very self-aware too. You know, a lot of, you know, an idiot is not always self-aware. An idiot might think there, but when when Tony says at that same golf course scene, "Step up, Carmine. You have our backing," or something, right? And yeah. then Carmine sits back and he goes, "You never thought you'd mutter those words, did you?" So he yeah. knew. Of course, he screws up the the sentence, but. He knew that these guys didn't think he had what it takes to run the family. He was aware of their view of him. So that yeah. makes him, you know, more self-aware than you might think he is. More self-aware than all the other characters were. You could say that, yeah. yeah. I'm very, just very, la- <laughs> <laughs> very layered character. I mean, honestly, yeah. And you play him very well. I'm, uh, yeah, and just interesting theories i mean i do you like read into stuff like after the finale happened I'm, of course which is a he always talked about do you like read into that stuff or do people ask you a lot what, i, what I didn't happened? i didn't for a long time you know the ending the ending was a big deal uh you mm-hmm. know we all got assigned different places to watch it and we were told you know you don't don't defend it it is what it is i knew how it ended i knew what they it just ended with them in the thing but i didn't know it was going to be that the music stops and cut to black I mean, even mm-hmm. I was like, wow, you know, we read it. It just ends, you know, fade to black. But so that was so jarring. And I watched it at HBO at a theater, excuse me, at HBO with reporters and uh, quite a few of the cast members. And when it was over, there was like dead silence and people and the reporters were like, what is that all about? And, and David Chase had written up, given us a letter and said, you know, don't try to justify it. Just let it be what it is, you know. Um, mm-hmm. 
So that's what we did. And I remember afterwards, people really were angry. People were furious. I can imagine. You know, <laughs> you know and, um, you know, can I curse on this show? Yeah. Okay. Because I was at the airport flying back. You know, I had been up late that night because we all kind of partied and, uh, and um, I'm flying back to LA and I'm sitting in the, waiting to board the plane. I'm wearing sunglasses and a hat. A guy comes up to me and he says, fuck you and fuck David Chase. You wasted seven years of my life. And I'm like, what? The guy was so violent and people were like, that was terrible. And about four to five days later, people started saying, you know, when it first ended, I was so angry, but now that I'm sitting with it a little, I kind of, you know, and as the years went by, some people are still angry. Uh, Some people will never be happy. You know, they wanted to see his brain splattered all over the screen or whatever, but uh, I think that would have been cheap. Um, but people came to realize that, uh, that it really was pretty, pretty brilliant. We're all, look, we're talking about it 15 years later. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's very in the same vein of the character, the characteristics that the show had the entire time. Exactly. You know? Exactly. He never wrapped things up. He, yeah. you know, we don't know who, we don't, what happened to the Russian? What happened to Melfi's rapist? The he, Russian, oh my God. His whole point was life doesn't wrap up like that. People come nope. into our lives and you, you think we're going to be best friends and then all of a sudden you never see them again. That's just the way life is. Things don't wrap up. We, we were used to television where everything comes wrapped up in a nice bow, maybe in a mellifluous box. But um, it, it, life isn't like that. And I think that's kind of what his point was. Life goes on. Uh, I don't think Tony died at the end. That's my personal opinion. I have several okay. I have several reasons why I think that. Um, I think he's always going to be looking at the door. I think that was the point. Um, and it also was the happiest his family ever was. That's an interesting thing. It's, you know, they were getting along. That was a, one of the best meals they ever had together. Sure. You know? and, and he even says to, he even says, AJ says something like, oh, you told us once about your, how you have to really enjoy the happy moments in life. I think he, AJ says something like that. And yeah. I always thought that was a throwback to, you know, it's not about being boss. It's about being happy, about you being know. Happy. Uh, I think that still resonated. Um, yeah, I, I, people were angry. And um, yeah, I, I read some of this. There's so many theories. There's so many crazy. I mean, I saw a theory about that. AJ's girlfriend, was, the young girl he was with for a couple of scenes, was the informant that set up the hit because she was really could, Yeah. Because she was in the sitting watching TV and somebody says, Oh, we're going to Holstein's tonight. So she hears that. So I now the did whole, not hear that. No. So the whole theory is, Oh, so she informed the other family, whoever it was, that, you know, because she was the only one that knew and she was a plant. And it's like, yeah, 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 you could, you can make up anything you want, but I think they had a nice meal. <laughs> That's for sure. With some That's the one good, thing we pretty good onion rings. That's the one thing we do know, and yeah. you'll never be able to listen to Don't Stop Believing the you, same way again. You, you always expect it to stop, right? Yeah. <laughs> if they ever do it live, they should they should just they should just stop. Should. That would be that would be fun. Uh, you know, and there's so much in that episode. It's called Made in America, you know, and I think um, mm-hmm. we never saw that restaurant in any other scene in The Sopranos previous to that. And mm-hmm. if you look in the scene, it doesn't even really seem like New Jersey. There's a kind of a redneck guy, trucker kind of guy. There's some cub scouts with the guy and there's a young lovers and it's it really is a cross section of america that that restaurant could have been anywhere in america and i think that david chase's message was you know this show is about this family uh the mob family and the real life family 
and corruption and everything else, but it's really just the microcosm for America. And I think that's in the title, and I think that's in that scene. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well said. Wow. <laughs> you, you said it better than, yeah. than anyone and I, David I know. David Chase. No, I yeah. <laughs> oh, I know he's watching, right? Then we he's, were, wa- he's we're, watching. We already so. established he's watching. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. No, for, going back to what you said before that people are still angry. I mean, people are always going to be – they're always going to have people that are going to be angry. I mean, you could draw it to – it's become – a huge thing with uh, lots of shows now with, yeah. I don't know if you follow game of Thrones also, which we talk about a lot mm-hmm. on the podcast where there's always going to be people who are angry about that. Yeah. There's always, you're never going to be able to please everyone. And I think it's interesting that they gave you like almost an NDA. Uh, um, he gave you like instructions what to say. Yeah. Well, like, just, not, the, to say just any, not to say anything, not to say, yeah. don't try to justify it. It is what it is. Let it sit, yeah. you know? Uh, and I thought that was, that was kind of brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, I got a, a couple more questions about the uh, the Sopranos, and then uh, maybe we could. Uh, I want to talk in about being about cousins. The, about being cousins. <laughs> did you know familia. I was? Your, did you know I was your cousin the whole time you were watching the show? I did. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's funny, which is also a fun fact. I just connected the dots uh, when I was preparing for the show. Is my parents told me they went to see a show of yours oh. uh, and it's the longest single shot oh, film yeah. in American history. Your grandparents came too. Yeah. 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 The, the whole thing. Yeah. We did it. We, I shot this movie. Um, it's called um, somebody marry me mm-hmm. and it's 98 minutes with no cuts and everybody, nobody understands it. They say, well, you have some hidden cuts. I'm just like, no, there are no cuts. We d- shot the movie in one continuous take and I drive in the movie. It's like five locations, actors waiting for me at different locations. And we kind of rehearsed it on a sound, on a little theater stage. And then we got to the location the day before and we kind of walked it through and I'd walk with the cameraman. He'd say, now when you go here, you got to go really wide so I could get in the door. Don't forget, don't close the door behind you because I got to come in. So I'm remembering all this stuff. And we talked it through. And the only time we went through the movie from beginning to end with the camera is the movie the that's actual, insane I, the I have actual, to watch this thing. it's yeah it's it's really a it, and when the you know we we did the first take we did <clears throat> there was an actor i got into the scene and we got about 10 minutes in and the actor said line and we said no you you can't ask for line because we're not cutting so so that means everybody has to go back to the beginning, which means oh, every no. prop has to be reset. Every car has to be reset. Every actor has to be reset. All, you know, and it's time. So then we did another one and he screwed up again. And then we did a third one and we got 78 minutes in. We're at the last location before I'm going back to the original location. And I see the camera go up like this and the cameraman's head drop. The memory card on the thing filled up because somehow the camera was shooting three frames. So 78 minutes in. So now it's getting dark. It's starting to rain. We have to break for lunch. And we say, we only have the location for one day. And the director said, Ray, what do you think? I said, we got to give it one more shot. We got to try it one more time. So uh, we did. And the only time we went from beginning to end is the movie. That's pretty awesome. One time. Yeah. Crazy stuff happened. There was like, I guess we were driving in real traffic. It was a low budget thing, you know, so we didn't have mm-hmm. police stopping traffic. I get stopped at a red light. That's the longest red light in Los Angeles. 
and I run out of dialogue. There's no more. So the director's in the back and there's a girl in a truck with me and he says, <clears throat> Ray, riff. So, you know, the camera's on me. So I, you know, he says that and I just had to just, just make stuff up. And I did an homage to, um, did you ever see Best in Show? I haven't, no. Oh, it's a great movie. And Christopher Guest uh, is in that. And he talks about different kinds of nuts at one time. And he says, yeah, oh, there's a million kinds of nuts. There's peanuts, cashew nut, red pistachio nut, white <laughs> pistachio nut, macadamia nut. It's just a funny, funny scene. And my character sells bagels. So he said, you got to kill time. And all of a sudden I say, well, you know, there's a million different kinds of bagels. You got your plain bagel. You got me. And somehow that scene popped in my head. So I just completely did an homage to Christopher Guest, except instead of nuts, I did bagels. That's <laughs> almost like a, that's like Forrest Gump, the, the shrimp. In. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Very similar. Yeah. yeah. Popcorn, shrimp, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, shrimp stew, shrimp, shrimp salad. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. So if, if if you guys wouldn't have done it, that take that that's it. That movie it. wouldn't exist. Yeah, I don't know what we would have done. I don't think we could have raised enough money. I don't think we could have because we were shooting in a big mansion. We couldn't have gotten that house. It was on a Sunday. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think we could have raised the money to do it again. I don't know what would have happened. It's kind of like yeah, yeah. It's kind of like theater to the extreme. It almost. was. It yeah. was a real hybrid of the, and that's how it happened. The director I had been on a I acted with on a show called um, In Plain Sight which we shot in Albuquerque that was on for a while. And uh, I was a recurring role and he was a guest star and we flew down to Albuquerque together and we kind of hit it off. And <clears throat> then he came to see me in a play. And uh, once he saw me do a, you know, a 90 minute play and he had this idea to do a movie in one shot, he says, well, I got to have you somebody that could do 90 minutes of dialogue. And uh, you know, cause sometimes people do TV for a long time. They can't, and they don't do theater. Um, they lose that that facility, that muscle mm-hmm. of uh, so that gave him the idea, and then and that that's how it came about. His name is John Asher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's really awesome. Is it? It's a. Is it on like streaming or? It's on. I think it might be on Apple. I think you could order it on iTunes. I gotcha. And maybe something else. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, listeners, go go check out somebody marry me. I'm yeah, definitely going to watch it. It's a it's a fun little movie, and and it, and when you you forget that it's all in one shot. And if you think about the logistics of what it takes to pull that off, it's, it's pretty intense. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's a lot of single shot movies, but I think a lot of them are kind of they're cheated quote unquote single shot where they, they find ways to cut it. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, even in, I mean, the first one was a movie called rope by Alfred Hitchcock. And uh, mm-hmm. that was a big deal. Well, in those days they couldn't do it because the film canisters, the magazines only held three minutes so that's all they could do. So okay. he made a longer movie called Rope. But what he'd do is the camera would be moving behind the couch and then he'd cut there and then he'd be able to pick up the shot from there. They'd do those kind of wipes. And yeah. uh, we really worked very hard of, it, of never even making it look like we could possibly do a wipe, you know? Like we never even like came around the truck where you think, oh, okay, they're, they're cutting there. We purposely worked very hard where there's no place where we can hide a cut. Very interesting yeah. experiment. Kind yeah, of. it yeah, was. It was an. Ex- and when he cool. said, when the director said cut, when we finally finished, <clears throat> I think there were fifteen, eighteen actors in it, and we all got in the location. He said cut. People were crying. I mean, the tension. Oh, I can imagine. It was. It was. It was so tense and to think that we pulled it off, uh, and you know things did go wrong, but we were we were able to adjust while we were doing it, and uh, 
you know, that's back to coming theater. You know, you do theater, stuff goes wrong. You got to just, you just got to keep plowing through no matter what happens. So yeah, that's where that, that training came in handy. I can imagine you yeah. probably just, oh my, sweating through the entire thing. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. But, the, um, the worst part of that movie, I'll tell you, was my haircut. I, <laughs> because the week before uh, I got cast in Mad Men, which is Matt Weiner, who was a writer on The Sopranos. He wrote mm-hmm. Luxury Lounge, that Ben Kingsley episode, as a matter of fact. Okay. Uh, but, and he created Mad Men. So he hired me to be on uh, Mad Men. And uh, he decided, you know, I think this character has a real old-fashioned kind of 50s haircut. So they shaved the back of my head, you know. <sighs> and it's the worst haircut I've ever had in my life. And then I had to, we, we had to do that movie. So if anybody watches the movie, please, please don't judge my hair. Okay, don't don't judge it by my hair. It's the only thing I'm going to be looking at. <laughs> I'm sure <she> you. <laughs> yeah, but but we just went on a, like huge the the I'm ch- back to where the tangent came from is that uh I made the connection there is that's when like I think I officially knew my parents are like oh yeah your cousin's an an actor oh and they, yeah, yeah yeah and then when we were watching The Sopranos they they told me before and when we first started wow. Uh, they had seen it before and then we got to the, I'll tell you quickly my story of the finale is that they, my dad was like, can't wait for you to see the finale. And I was like, don't, don't spoil anything. Stop it. And we get to it. Like the screen goes black. I'm staring at, they look back at me. I was like, I didn't do anything. <laughs> do we have a blackout? Like I'm not sitting on the remote. Which Every, I'm sure. Everybody, everybody, people were calling the cable companies, you know, everybody thought something went wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty, pretty ingenious. Yeah, I, you know, it's so funny. I have very clear memories of, of your family coming to see my family, our family, our family coming to see coming to see. And there's a, actually a couple of great uh, photographs of all of us together that oh, yeah? night when they came. Yeah, it was for some film festival, New York Film Festival or something. We, and there was a screening of it. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. There's a great so, photo. Yeah. I'll send you the photo. I know I have them somewhere. It's, they're really Yeah, good. definitely. Yeah. Send it to me. Both your grandparents yeah. are in it and aunt, your aunt Rosemary and yeah, everybody. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I bet they're, yeah, definitely send that to yeah, me. Yeah, I will. I will. So you're living in LA now, right? I've been in LA <clears throat> for over 40 years. Yeah. Yeah. Long, and long. how is that? Like you grew up in New York. I mean, like what was, how's that transition for, for acting the communities and it, now, it was tough. Pandemic. It took me a really long time to get started out here. And there really wasn't much theater per se out here. Although the first things I did were some plays uh, with some actors. I'm still uh, very close with um, from back then. Uh, it, it was, it was a transition, but I just, you know, I moved from the East village on East sixth street and first uh, Avenue to a little apartment on the beach in Malibu. So it was like, I really made the decision at that time, to not compare the two, not say, oh, New York, LA. it's like, I'm in LA, you know, LA has space, it has the beach, it has the mountains, and New York has Manhattan. So I just always kept them separate in my mind, and didn't try to make LA New York or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really kind of made sense to me and has kept me enjoying both and not, uh, not comparing them in a negative, either one in a negative way. I really, I have a need for both. Yeah. And how was it like, I know it's tons of actors and filmmakers and musicians, and it's just a vibrant community over there. I mean, during the pandemic, what what was it? I mean, not to get too down in the dumps, but what what was it like? Everything just stopped. Everything stopped. 
you know, there was some, I did some of these kind of zoom play readings and stuff and they were very, they weren't satisfying because it's it, when you have eight characters and, you know, zoom, you know, the, the sound, the person comes on after they start talking. Yeah. I never, it never really worked. I did a, a bunch of them, but it never really, really worked for me. Um, unless a piece was written for the pandemic that took place on zoom, several mm-hmm. things like that happened. And those were kind of fun. Uh, but in, in general, it was just, you know what happened? I'm going to tell you, I'll be honest with you, you know, for, I've been doing this for I don't know, 45 years and, uh, I know I don't look it. And, um, you know, every night about six o'clock and every Friday, especially it's like, oh man, my agents didn't call today. Friday would come. Oh, another week. I didn't get a job. And that's been in my mind for 40 years. You know, when am I going to work again? And then the pandemic hit and I felt the same way. And then about a month in, I said, oh, my agents, oh, wait a minute. Nobody got a job today. (laughs) There are no jobs. And all of a sudden I just, I felt this kind of weird freedom from that thing that was in the back of my mind from my whole adult life of me not getting a job today. So it was actually kind of freeing. Um, And, uh, you know, but then of course, I just want to work. You know, I love, I love the work, but there was a, there was a certain amount of relaxation that came with, and I felt guilty about it too, to be honest, you know, I'm out here and you can see, I have, you know, outdoor space. And during the pandemic, I have friends that live in Manhattan Plaza in New York. And, you know, and when New York was hit so hard, everybody was stuck in their, stuck in their apartments. They were scared to get in the elevators. Nobody knew what was happening, you know, in the early stages. And I, I felt a real kind of guilt because I could kind of almost live normally here. Um, it's very, so very strange time. It was a very, very, very strange time. Yeah, it still is. I mean, it still is, but starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel a little bit. At, at least uh, Broadway's back. Oh, and that's shows amazing. Back, like- yeah, yeah. I can't, I'm looking forward to get back to New York and uh, supporting some theater and seeing, yeah, I just saw To Kill a Mockingbird. Somebody posted a picture. They went to see that with uh, Jeff Daniels. I'd love to see that. I have a friend in Wicked, just opened on Wicked and, Oh, yeah, that's I'm, awesome. Yeah, I, I'm look forward. I look forward to to getting back to New York for that for sure. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Um, doing some well, theater, doing some theater myself. Yeah. Yeah. I, do you have any projects like coming up? What are you working on right now? I've been, you know, since the pandemic ended, all of a sudden, you know, I've been helping. I helped a couple of young uh, filmmakers that were doing their first films. Um, Terry Winter hooked me up with a kid that was doing his his thesis film and asked me if I would help him out. So I've been doing a lot of those and those, you know, those are kind of, kind of fun. I just shot a little film in Hawaii, a low budget film in Hawaii. You know, sometimes it's not about the role. Sometimes it's not about the money. Some, you know, it's like real estate location, location, location. So it's like, you want to go to Hawaii and shoot this film with friends of yours? It's like, okay, I'll go. Tough decision. Yeah, it was tough. And uh, so, uh, you know, it's things are just starting to pick up again now and, and we'll see. And, I do a lot of cameos. Like, I don't know if I told you, so I do a lot of those cameo videos, which I, I actually have a lot of fun doing them. I really, really enjoy doing them because uh, it's, it's like revisiting little Carmine. Everybody wants to hear the malaprops and the little Carmineisms, And, you know, so I have them all at the ready and, uh, and people love, I do them all over the world. Uh, Australia is huge. They're huge fans of Sopranos now in Australia. Really? It's unbelievable. I say I do more for Melbourne, Australia than than almost anywhere. And Ireland, tons in Ireland and England. The show is huge. 
like like it's new. It's like that's got to be a great feeling. It's just a, knowing like it's a, it's so expansive. It's oh, permeated well, every. Somebody part sent of the me world. a thing that there's a sandwich in a, at a cheese shop in Melbourne, Australia, called the Little Carmine. Okay, look at that. You know, so it's like uh, it's 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 pretty amazing. It's uh, yeah, the show. I I never imagined. I knew the show would go down in history as a great show, but I didn't realize that it would have so many new fans constantly. You know. Because it's, it's crazy. It's really not dated at all. You know, you could watch the episodes now and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel dated at all. It's, I think, I think it's going to, it's one of those that are going to live forever. You know, oh, yeah. Tony says something to, uh, to Christopher after at the Cleaver premiere, he says, whatever you did, whatever you do in your life, you made this movie and people are going to be talking about it forever. And I knew that that was, they were talking about the Sopranos, but, uh, <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, it's it's kind of true to be part of something that that's going to be that's iconic and is going to be part of TV history is pretty uh, humbling and uh, satisfying. Yeah, and now it's continuing even further with the uh, with the prequel that just came out. Yeah, yeah, I saw it. You want to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's quick, like, it, quick thoughts. Uh, well, if, quick if you thoughts. It's like everything else. I remember when the dream sequence has happened in The Sopranos, or or almost every season finale. Ser- uh, series season finale yeah um people were angry you know oh what was that dream i didn't want to watch that dream i don't want to see that veto storyline i didn't you know people are always complaining you never and david chase never gave you what everybody wanted you know no he gave you the story right he doesn't he doesn't pander to his audience and he made this movie that he wants to make it's you know did i want to see other things in the movie yeah did i have problems with the movie yeah but you know, David Chase wanted to make this movie. So David Chase wanted to make this movie. And as a Sopranos fan, it's just happy to be, it'd be back in the world again. Just get yeah. some expansive material if, in, if, the, in the universe. If nothing else, the so many people in the last week binge watched all the whole, all the episodes of the Sopranos again. So, <laughs> I'll, I'll, <laughs> so I'll, funny. it's like me getting the scraps that fell off the many saints table. You know, I'll take them, you know, it's yeah. just people, people are just rewatching the show and it's, uh, yeah, it's so funny. I was at the gym the other day, and this old guy goes, "Oh, I was watching The Sopranos the other day. Oh, you know what scene is so funny? With those two guys, they go out to Hollywood, and they're in the luxury lounge with Ben Kingsley, and he's telling me, oh, that scene, those two guys were so funny.' <laughs> and it's like, you know, that was me. But uh, you, should, you should have pulled up the picture. You mean this guy? This guy here? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, oh, this guy's much. He's much younger. Yeah. Well, that happens. <laughs> Um, funny story is my younger brother who's up in college now. Um, he started watching the Sopranos for the first time, maybe a couple months ago uh-huh. before he went back to school this year. And he was on the last season, the week the movie was coming out. And I texted him the night before I said, Hey, you going to see the movie? He's like, I got 14 episodes left. I'm watching them all right before I go see the movie. A lot of people did. A lot of people really binge the whole thing. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Where does it, where's he going to school? Uh, Ithaca College, oh, upstate cool. New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah he'll, yeah. he'll enjoy the winters up there. <laughs> I could speak for him and say no, he won't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, jealous of of you out in uh on the west coast. Yeah, where... it's pretty nice here. Well, it's we could use nice. some rain. We had a big thunderstorm the other night. Actually, I was I went to see the many saints in Newark, and then all of a sudden there was this. We haven't had rain in months and months, and there was thunder and lightning and downpour. That lasted for a few hours, but we could use some rain out here. That's for sure. 
I bet. Yeah. You guys don't get mu- much of it. And you guys uh, get too much. You guys- <laughs> way too much. Take some of it, that honestly, was please. Yeah, it's funny how that worked out. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, after coming out of Many Saints, I thought, you know, this is, obviously there's so much material that they can keep expanding upon this world. Mm-hmm. One, they could honestly do a whole entire series or a series of uh, movies on the New York crime family. Has David Chase ever, I don't know if he's ever spoken to you about or if you no, heard he's about never plan. spoken to me. <laughs> <laughs> like I've had, very, ever... I've had very, very little actual interaction with, uh, with David Chase. Uh, you know, I was always scared of him, you know, cause it's like, I always felt if I looked at him the wrong way, little Carmine gets whacked, you know, um, <laughs> yeah, which I didn't want to happen, but uh, he's always been lovely and, and, and effusive kind of, um, yeah, there's a million ways they could go. I remember even early on, I thought if they ever did another movie, it should be a prequel. Um, so, but there's still room even from when this prequel ended. There's still places there's so many for more, years. you know, a sequel to the prequel, which is still a prequel to The Sopranos. Um, <laughs> yeah. You could quote me on that. Um, is still possible. And somebody was talking about, uh, and maybe it was on the um, Talking Sopranos podcast that, you know, somebody should do a sitcom with Little Carmine, you know. Oh, my God. Yeah. You know, call it whatever happened there or something. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, it's funny. I will tell you this. You asked me before if um, if I had ever heard about Little Carmine whacking Tony. And early on, I had, like I said, I heard that. And I had this idea, if that did happen, which it didn't, but if it did, that I thought there should be like a Curb Your Enthusiasm type show with Little Carmine, where it's me, Ray Abruzzo, playing Ray Abruzzo but that the real mob is so pissed off that I killed Tony that they put a contract out on me. <laughs> so then it's like me, like, you know, I'm in the actor protection program and I have to go into hiding because the real mob wants to kill me for killing the fictional character, Tony Soprano. Like but their would, fans of the show who yeah, are upset about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I thought that would be, you know, that could be like a funny kind of, a funny show and then and if Gandalf the idea was when Gandolfini was still alive and and I go see him but now he's like in a basement kind of like uh, Kurt, um, Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now and he just doesn't want to be bothered he doesn't want to be in the pie I said look you got to go out and tell them that you're still alive that's just a TV show that I didn't you know and he's going no no I don't want to you know I'm, I, I don't want to be in the public anymore <laughs> that was my idea flashed between the- that and the Cleaver entourage idea, I mean, you're, you're, you're I know you're overflowing with great ideas. Overflowing with ideas, but here I am sitting talking to you. So <laughs> we're honored to have you here. <laughs> um, kind of going back to the the prequel stuff, like if they ever did maybe the crime, uh, the New York crime family, and expanded on that. If somebody was cast to play a younger you, what advice would you give them? Like, what do you imagine? playing a younger Carmine would be different than like the Carmine and the Sopranos. Wow. It would be very, yeah, that would be interesting. I think you'd have to show, well, I, you'd have to show some, his insecurity about how, what his father thought about him. Cause that comes across in the golf course scene, you know, mm-hmm. when, you know, that's a, that's a big moment for little Carmine when his father says, you know, does uh, the Sopranos kid as decisive as he is, I'd be glad to call him my son. You know, and that's the moment that flips Carmine around to now take shots at Tony, where before he was on Tony's side. You know, that yeah. that comment flips the whole, because Carmine came up there to, to manipulate his father, and then he does the complete flip because of that. So I'd say that that would be something that should be explored. 
trying to fa- get his father's approval. And then, uh, and you know, find out what made him go down to Florida, what made him not be in the family business at that point, you know, although he was doing stuff down in Florida. What was he doing down in Florida? The advice, I don't know what the, you know, Michael Imperioli asked me, uh, about what my approach to the character was. And uh, it, it hit me about after the second episode that uh, I thought he thought he was Michael Corleone, the son, you know, but he was really Fredo. That was, but so I approached, I approached the character as Michael, but with the lines they wrote. So I always delivered it with that kind of, the, you know, how Michael had, the, the way he sat, you know, he always sat very, you know, so I kind of incorporated that, that he wanted to be that. But using the words that they gave me came out of his mouth, belied what he thought he was doing and how he was sitting and his posture and everything. So that was my approach to the character. So I would, I would impart that on somebody else trying to play the character younger. I'd give them that little, that little tidbit might be enough to get, get you through it. That's really cool. Yeah. It's a very, very interesting approach to. Yeah. And that didn't come to me till maybe after the second or third, because I didn't know what the character was, but that didn't come to me till about maybe two two or three episodes in. I came up with that and that kind of carried me through. And I, you'll see there are scenes where I purposely, I purposely sit like Michael, you know, as in the, Mm -hmm. whatever happened there scene, you know? Yeah. You're sitting with my legs crossed, arms up on the thing. Like, yeah. So very, very cool. Yeah. Well, man, it's been great. Great speaking to you. I mean, maybe we'll, maybe we'll have a family reunion. I think we definitely need to have a family reunion. Yeah. Maybe next time I'm out on the West coast or you're on the East coast. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I should be getting to the East coast. We'll definitely, we'll definitely get together. That'd be yeah. great. I don't know if you know, I was recently on the West Coast, actually, for my first time. Um, my friends and I went to San Francisco. Oh, I think your mother might have t- 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 sent me an email or a Facebook thing about that. Yeah. Yeah. We have a, a so apparently we, we, we do have a cousin, Mario Abruzzo, who works at one of the best pizza places in San Francisco. You're kidding. Did you yeah. meet him? I didn't meet, I was so close to meeting, but I ate at the pizza place the night he wasn't working there. Like, it just how, how, was, how was the pizza? I was, I was skeptical. You know, I'm a, I'm a very yeah, yeah. <laughs> New York t- pure and yeah. it was very, very good. Really? Very good. They make okay. a good old fashioned. They make good pizza. You know, there's a, there's a restaurant. I don't know if you saw it. I haven't been up there on Fisherman's Wharf called Sabella's. Did you see that? Very famous. I don't know if it's still there. Maybe. It was there. It was there years ago. Sabella's. But Sabella is, would be your great, great grandmother. And they were related to us that opened that restaurant. Some of the family really? went to San Francisco back in the early 1900s, the Sabellas, which was my grandmother's, your grandfather's aunt. Wow. <laughs> I think uh, that was their last name was Sabella. Wow. Because we, we, I stayed in Fisherman's Wharf. I, oh. if, it, if I saw it, I, I would probably, I'll look up what the yeah, I don't know if it's like. still there. I mean, I remember my father telling me about that. My father's gone. 28 years already. So, uh, but I remember, I remember as a kid and I remember going to San Francisco once and seeing it, but, uh, they were supposedly distant relatives of ours. <clears throat> so, so we got that going for us. There we go. We're, <laughs> got people in the entertainment industry. <laughs> we got the fish, food. you got pizza. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Well, Ray, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, it's been great speaking. You get getting to know you, man. I, uh, let's not let the conversation stop here. No, well, we'll, do, we'll do it in person real soon. Definitely. Okay. Looking forward to it. Okay, Cougene. <laughs> Take care, man. And for all the listeners out there, join the heist. See you later.